goofy right now. Michael, I don't know how to be the one to break this to you, but everything about you is poofy all the time. That really tickles me that you feel that way. <laughs> uh, Michael. Mm-hmm. Hi. Hi. How are you? I just got back from dropping off Skeeter with my parents and my brother. Dropping off Skeeter with your parents and brother? Yeah, yeah. So your girlfriend's dog is being dog sat by your family? Yes. Wow. That's the setup for a like a rom-com or a sitcom or something right there. I'm in deep now. Like, if I were to try to escape right now, there would be anger. I've never been in this situation before. Right. I love it. I love this for you. Uh, yeah, Grunge Girl and I are going to a wedding. Right. So we needed to drop off the puppers. That's cute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's been kind of a long day of driving, but I am excited to see what you're going to bring us today about... Yes, about, it's... Don't... I will say it in a second. Okay, don't spoil right. it, but it is going to be good. How are you? Oh, Baruch Hashem, I'm well. I had the first class of my Talmud fellowship today, and that was really fun and magical part of my day. That's cool. Lots of our patrons have been sending me pictures of them wearing our shirt, and it's been really cute. Oh, that's cool. Like, how? In various forms of social media. Okay, yeah, I don't, I don't know anything about that. I'll send you some at some point. Okay. Yeah, things have mostly been good my boyfriend so normally he works late so we wake up around 10 or 11 the other day he had to go in early for training so i had to wake up at 6 a.m that sucked that fucking sucked that's all over now i've regained my sleep i'm no longer on sleep deficit i don't know things are good things are good for me i'm feeling energized i'm i'm vibing that's great you know let's just dive right into this juicy topic So if our dear and noble listeners will recall, last week we talked about gay stuff. Basically, we talked about sort of some gender issues present in the Leviticus verses about homosexuality. And we talked about some Talmudic gender categories and all that kind of stuff. And we provided a couple couple different routes through textual interpretation to get towards a less homophobic reading of Torah. We've at least given some sort of uh, rationalizations for how homosexuality, bird's eye view homosexuality, could be acceptable. But we haven't gone into the nitty-gritty details. Right. So content warning before I just dive right into this, that this week's episode will contain lots of explicit sexual content. Because, now that I've given that content warning, this week we are going to be talking about anal sex in the rabbinic literature. When I originally conceptualized answering this listener's question, I sort of thought of it as having two parts, essentially, the permissibility of gay relationships and the permissibility of anal sex, because those aren't necessarily the same thing. We sort of dealt with the verse, quote, a man shall not lie with a man. We, we read that in a bunch of different ways, but we haven't really gone beyond that into some more specifics about what might be prohibited or permitted. Right. And that was a specific request by this listener who wrote in. Right. The listener did have a specific moment of asking about what's up with anal in Torah. This is the beginning of the answer to that question. Okay, great. Where do we begin? So we are beginning in ye old Nedarim 20b. Nedarim is a Masechet that is theoretically dealing with issues relating to a neder, which is a, a specific kind of 
basically super intense vow that a person can take. They're not really so much a thing that's still extant in Jewish life, but at the time they were a big topic. And obviously this is not about that at all. But to set our scene, before we get into the original text, basically what happens is this dude named Yochanan bin Dehavai, who is not the same as our Rebbe Yochanan, who we know and love, who will be coming up today. But Rabbi Yochanan bin Dehavai has come and said essentially a bunch of ableist stuff about sex. Bin Dehavai has come and said, oh, if you have sex this way, your child will be born blind. And if you have sex this way, yada, yada, yada. Basically framing different disabilities as sort of like consequences for deviant sex. Are we sure that that's the correct reading and not like, hey guys, just so you know? Like, check out the sweet perk if you fuck this way. <laughs> I mean, that perhaps is a whole other episode, but for the purposes of this, I think we can just assume he is framing various disabilities present from birth as punishment for deviant sex. And so our heroic Rabbi Yochanan, who we love, is going to come along and tell us differently. Okay, great. Amar Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan said, Zodiv Yochanan ben Havai. Aval amru chachamim ein halacha. These are the words of Ben Dahavai, but the sages said that this is not the way the law goes. Kayochanan ben Dahavai ela kol mash adam rotse laashot beishto ose. Rather, whatever a man wishes to do with his wife, and and we'll talk about gender issues will continue to come up throughout this episode. But direct translation: whatever a man wishes to do with his wife, he may do. So this is the general principle that we'll be talking about again and again today. And where we're sort of starting from is this halachic contention that whatever someone wishes to do in a halachically sanctioned relationship, they may do. That's our, our base principle. Okay. Yochanan goes on to explain. It's like meat that comes from the butcher. If he wants to eat it with salt, he can eat it that way. If he wants to eat it roasted, he can eat it roasted. If he wants to eat it cooked, he can eat it cooked. If he wants to eat it boiled, he can eat it boiled. And likewise with fish that comes from the fisherman. <laughs> well, I mean... <laughs> this is like the original wet-ass pussy. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Yochanan comes along with this quite sexist, uh, potentially, metaphor to say, your wife is just like a piece of meat that you get from the butcher. Once you get it from the butcher, you can do whatever you want. I mean, if it goes both ways, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're once again sort of encountering this Talmudic experience that we're frequently encountering where it's like, a really cool principle and a really weird principle sort of smushed up into one glob of text where it's like all kinds of sex is permissible. Also, your wife is a piece of meat from the butcher. Yeah, well, you know, uh, <laughs> I have nothing to say to that. But, but wait, 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 wait. This isn't the halakha, right? This wasn't what the rabbis decided was the official. No, no, ruling. no. This is the halakha. Oh, okay. What is not the halakha is what Dahavai was saying before about the like disabilities as punishments for deviant sex. Oh, okay. I see. So, so Ben Dahavai said this whole thing about how deviant sex would be punished through you having a disabled child. And our hero, Rabbi Yochanan, came along and said, not so. It's not that way at all. First of all, you can fuck whatever freak way you like. And okay. sort of 
included in his rebuttal of that is also sort of getting rid of the idea of those punishments, quote, punishments. Okay, okay, great. So let me guess where you're going to go with this. Are you going to try to say that men can be wives? We're going to be talking more sources relating to this, but I'm not even going to make that contention. My contention is basically that man and wife is sort of the paradigmatic example of a halakhically sanctioned relationship. Right, right, right. And once we've done our work that we did last week to sort of establish that relationships between men are, in my opinion, permitted, then we can sort of extrapolate that sort of similar rules apply between permitted relationships. Okay, so we already have the tools this early in the episode combined with what we talked about in the last episode to get you off the hook for anal sex. (laughs) Right, to get you off the butt hook. Okay, see you guys next week. (laughs) So I'm going to bring in a a few other things to sort of broaden our our discussion of of what's at stake here. I do want to say something funny. You may have noticed at the end of the meat metaphor, Rabbi Yochanan mentions it's also like a fish from the fisherman house. Yes, yes. So it turns out in Gemara, the reason he brought the fish is because when he made this argument, people said to him, oh, but if you get meat, you're not allowed to eat it with milk. So therefore, your metaphor doesn't work. And he said, okay, it's also like fish. (laughs) And that's why he said the fish part. I'd like to think of like the people that I date become romantically involved and i kind of think of them as like organic heirloom tomatoes (laughs) i was thinking i think of them as like a naked sushi buffet well i have a question when we first started dating yes how would you have categorized me if you were to objectify me to your friends when we first started dating what and categorize you as a kind of food yeah what would i be um for some reason the first thing that popped into my head was beef jerky (laughs) (laughs) all right okay (laughs) um salty dry oh meaty though meaty okay great okay (laughs) i do not wish to receive an answer to that question (laughs) okay great great you won't um, zucchini okay so i just want to read um a quote from dove linzer of the joy of text podcast which is a podcast about sex from a orthodox jewish perspective that is really good for those of you who want that kind of thing but i just sort of liked his summation of this position which is there is nothing inherently wrong with this sex act or that one people just have different tastes and no value judgment should be assigned to that if you find a certain sex act repulsive it's no different than finding someone's eating choices repulsive this is just your emotional reaction and your tastes not a statement about the rightness or wrongness of the act i think dove linzer there is pretty well summarizing the position of Rabbi Yochanan that like sexual choices are essentially like personal and aesthetic and as long as they occur within a halakhically permissible relationship don't really have a moral dimension. So we're going to get a little more into some complications of this. We're going back to the Rambam to our good old friend Isure Biya, which is a it's a section of the Rambam's halakhic work dealing with sexual matters. So we're in Israel Bia, chapter 21, Halacha Tet, where he says, Ishto shel adam muteret hilo, lefi chak kol kolmash adam rotse, la rasot bishto rotse, bo el bechol et shei rotse, um nashek bechol evar o evar shei rotse, uva ale kedacha, weshelo kedacha, ubilva shelo, yose shikva zera la batala. 
a man's wife is permitted to him. So Rambam starts by sort of recapitulating the position of Yochanan, and then he goes on to be even more specific. Therefore, a man may do whatever he desires with his wife. He may engage in relations whenever he desires, kiss any organ he desires, engage in vaginal or anal intercourse, or engage in physical intimacy without relations, provided he does not release seed in vain. What does physical intimacy without relations mean? I think that just means non-penetrative sex acts. But don't release the seed in vain. Right, exactly. And that is something that he is pulling from the Talmud that I didn't pull the original text for, but that is sort of the sort of snag in this whole thing, right? Is that there's sort of a, a prohibition against what we might call onanism, that there's this whole thing about not releasing seed in vain that has been a thread that runs throughout Jewish halacha for a while, that sort of seminal emission is intended for procreation and therefore like that's the only context in which it needs to happen we've sort of already addressed in our asexual ancestors episode the flexibility that rabbinic culture actually has around the commandment to be fruitful and multiply right 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 so that's not really on display here but we can sort of pull from our past material to know like the rambam is saying this thing and i'm sure the rambam means it because he's a very strict kind of guy. But there's actually like a much broader texture within rabbinic society about the pressure to fulfill that aspect of sex. It's interesting. I mean, I can imagine these hardliners would go back and be like, fine, you don't have to be fruitful and multiply. We agree with the broader sense of it that some people in society ought to do that. Everyone has a different role, like the way we discussed. But that means the people that aren't fruitful, they still are not allowed to orgasm. <laughs> right. You're exempt from being fruitful and multiply, but somehow your seminal emission is still restricted. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, it's tough. That's a tough one. <laughs> yeah. So that's one potential snag. I don't really see it as a snag, but it's definitely a, an issue worthy of introducing. If you haven't listened to our Asexual Ancestors episode, I highly recommend you go back and listen to it. It is episode 74A, Be Fruity and Multiply. We talk about this issue a lot. So if you haven't heard it, go back and listen. It's a great listener question episode. So far, I'm hearing a lot about what men are allowed to do with their wives. But I've also heard that women are allowed to ask for a divorce. They're allowed to ask for a get if men aren't sexually pleasing them enough. Yes, that is a true and real thing, which you heard. That is an episode unto itself that we should do sometime. You may have noticed in our Rambam, one of the things the Rambam says is he may engage in relations with her whenever he desires, which raises sort of a sticky issue of like consent, marital consent, general sexual consent, and what's up with the Talmud on that. It's actually quite neat that on another daf of Talmud, there's this really neat exchange about consent where basically an Amora says anyone who coerces their wife at any time into sex is sinful and like that's prohibited. It's amazing to me, even given like how much the Talmud loves to quibble about everything. Basically, everyone is just like, great, moving on. <laughs> no one like challenges the substance of that claim, which I think is a pretty nice little gold star for the Talmud there. Whenever the man wants, then by deduction is when the wife wants it too. Correct. So I have a, an excerpt here from the Shulchan Aruch, which is a halachic work that I brought in translation that says, he may not have intercourse without her consent. And if she is not interested, he should appease her until she is interested. 
He should be very private during intercourse, having no people of any kind around, even a child, unless it is a baby who cannot speak. So this sort of touches on our consent question, right? It still has sort of a weird tone of like, we want everything to be consensual, but also we sort of like give you leeway to sort of push the envelope a little bit, um, which is not great. I think my subjective experience of consent has been that it can be more nebulous than like, I am 100% saying yes to this right now, or I am 100% saying no to this right now. Oftentimes, it ha- I have had moments where it's like, uh, oh, I'm kind of like watching a TV show right now, but then I am like able to be gotten interested in sex. So I think the Shohan Aruch is being a little skeezy here, and also like seduction exists in this world. And I don't think it's unilaterally evil. Okay. Um, uh, no comment. No, I, I, I agree. I agree. <laughs> you're, just because you're so often the object of seduction, that's why you say that. I am not that often the o- object of seduction. I don't feel that I way. think you, historically, I have frequently heard you describe yourself as sort of the victim of seduction. <laughs> as uh, like the victim of just like an innocent creature living in a world of powerful women. <laughs> Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, okay. You're right. You're right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't mind it so much, you know. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a great position to be in. The second half of that gets into sort of a second principle. He should be very private during intercourse, having no people of any kind around. This is talking about being private during sexual performance, but there is sort of running throughout Jewish law a general principle that we don't interrogate people on what's going on behind closed doors. You don't directly ask someone if they're keeping, you know, biblical purity laws about menstruation. You don't sort of like subject someone to that kind of public scrutiny. So there's another sense in which even if you don't go along with any of this and you think that gay people have to be celibate to be sort of on the right side of Jewish law, which I don't think that. We still have this sort of principle that it's like, it's none of your business to ask, essentially. It's none of your business to know about that if you're not a part of that couple. So to me, that's sort of creating a... Pleading the fifth kind of situation. uh... Yeah, it's like the opposite of a chilling effect. It's like creating a legal environment where gay sex is more likely if you know you're not going to be questioned on it. It's the brown paper bag around the liquor bottle. It's the plausible <laughs> Yeah, I was like, what part of the human body is the brown paper bag around sexually? <laughs> I imagined like so many. I was like imagining a boob paper, like a paper bag bra. But yeah, so even if you're going with sort of an outsider opinion here about what's up with anal sex, there's still sort of this like on principle social understanding of the privacy of sex that creates fertile grounds for gay sex. If sex is in the private domain and it's not something that you should be talking about, why even have halachic rules about it? Because it's not something that you're really performing in society. You don't really have a social role that the larger community needs to be aware of, really. Right. In my opinion, this is part of the reason that capitalism has chosen to privilege heterosexual pairings throughout history is because a certain kind of heterosexual sex actually does play a social role in that it reproduces the future members of that society, right? And so in a certain sense, you can view homophobic legal constructions of sex as sort of 
legislating that social role. In other words, they're only wanting people to engage in sex to the extent that it is performing its social role. It is the very privacy of sex that is like at issue. So you think the dirty monopoly man with the money bags wants everyone to have heterosex so that they make the babies so they can throw the babies into their like factory. Exactly. Oh, okay. Well, Hmm. I think that's like pretty essential in in the capitalist understanding of sex. And and even in this, the rabbis aren't really existing in a capitalist society, but it's pretty long ago that the family unit became sort of a a building block of state power. Whoa, wow. You're throwing (laughs) some stuff. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, this is we're getting into a whole other topic. It's been popularly said that sort of like the anus is the inherently anti-capitalist orifice because everyone has one and it has no reproductive value to a capital society. But 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 sugar and entertainment, you know, we all love a good Tennessee Williams play. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like that has no entertainment can be monetized. You know what I mean? So Yes, I think we've gotten to a pretty advanced stage of society in which more and more deviant forms of sex can sort of be utilized for taking a role in the state. They can become parts of markets. Yeah, okay, I guess you're saying it's it's 2021 right now. There's lots of money to be made on anal sex. Right, I mean, it's essential, right, for capitalism to be always finding new markets. And one of the ways it does that is by, like, creating more and more granular identities and things to sell to people based on those identities. Okay, so I could see how anal sex in another time might be perceived as like a symbolic of a threat to people in power. Yeah, and not that long ago, I think, was it experienced that way. But huh. it's telling to me, this is, we're getting into such meta-analysis I didn't I even think we'd yeah, get into. It's fine. But it's telling to me that the metaphor used in Talmud for anal sex is overturning the table, right? Oh, and that's what Jesus did in the temple. All those Tyrian shekels got scattered on the floor. To take it to an even more strange level, the Shulchan Aruch, which is one of the most foundational halachic works of all Judaism, Shulchan Aruch means setting the table. So oh. there's a sense in which, right, like the table is the appropriate order of things. And upturning the table is sort of antithetical to that order. That's why we have this whole question about anal sex to begin with. Hmm, hmm. I think there's something deeply psychologically threatening about anal sex that might go beyond market forces and things like that. But I'm not sure. Gonna... Sure, we can get Freudian about it. Yeah, I mean that's kind of it. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> that's that's a whole digression, but I do think that's all sort of present here as a subterranean current. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, setting the table, upturning the table. Wow. Right. The final thing I wanted to bring, the final text is from Baale Hanefesh, which is by the Ravad, which is this person, Abraham ben David, who was around from 1125 to 1198. He was a rabbi from Provence who did a bunch of halachic stuff. He has sort of a deviant opinion that I think still helps strengthen our case. Now he comes to say, now regarding what Reb Yochanan said regarding ben Dahavai, Whatever a man wants to do with his wife, he may do. It seems to me that this refers only to the overturning of the table alone, as reported in the stories there. But regarding other acts, even though one is not given strict punishments for them, nevertheless, there is still a prohibition regarding them. So 
basically what the Ravad's viewpoint is here is like anal sex is permitted, but all other non-PVI stuff is prohibited. Whoa. Whoa. So the reason I brought this, because I think it still strengthens our essential sort of case here that even this sort of like Mahmir strict kind of guy, even in his understanding, still like anal makes the cut. Anal makes the cut. <laughs> That's going to be the episode title. Anal makes the cut. Okay. But like a handy and a shandy does not make the cut. Yeah. He would not be pro handy and shandy. My summary of my moves that I made here. Okay. Is that marital sex, preferably with a procreative emission, but asterisk on that, that it's probably fine to not have a procreative emission, is the paradigmatic permitted relationship. Anal sex is permitted in that relationship. Even authorities that try to forbid other sex, like handjobs, blowjobs, people who are forbidding that are still permitting anal. So if we accept that this applies to other permitted relationships, which we have established in the Chai Howard You canon includes gay relationships, we can sort of extrapolate that all consensual sexual acts within permitted relationships are permitted by the letter of Jewish law. Wow. So that's where I land. That's where I land on, on all of this at the end of this anal journey. I'll take it. I think, yeah, from what we learned last episode and from the explicit permissibility of anal sex by these, by these rabbis, you, you tie those together and you should be good to go. Right, right. That's why I wanted to do this as sort of two separate episodes, because it felt like I really needed to establish the facts of our previous episode to be able to build the case of this episode. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we end up with a case where at the most extreme version, it's just anal. That's okay. And then in the sort of more realistic version that a broader spectrum of authorities embrace, anything that is consensual within a permitted relationship is chill. And we established last week that gay relationships sort of meet that bar. You could, I will say, just to argue against myself, you could say there's a difference between marriage, which is a halachically instantiated relationship, just to be very like conservative about it, right? And gay relationships or non-married relationships, which are sort of like passively permitted relationships, maybe there's a difference there. Maybe we're allowed to do more things in a relationship that has a stamp on it than in a relationship that just is not objected to. But that's, a, to me, a thin case. Yeah, because the question is, it's like, okay, great, this is all great for permissible relationships, but does your boyfriend count as a permissible relationship? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's between you and your boyfriend. I think, at the end of the day, it's very telling to me that a child born out of wedlock is not a mamzer, the Jewish equivalent of a bastard. It's only a child born out of a prohibited relationship that meets that. So adultery or other things like that. So to me, that sort of leads me towards the boyfriends are fine side, right? I see. Yeah, 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 yeah. My sense of the Torah values are in a certain sense, they'd like everyone to get married and have babies, but... They're like, you're going to get away with it if you don't. I'm also, I find it very compelling, the whole pleading the fifth, plausible deniability, expectation in Jewish communities. Right. And this comes up in, in other areas, you know, there's a, a strong halakhic principle that we can't use the technology of today to enforce the laws of yesterday. So 
in certain Jewish communities, you have a question of like, if we can use microscopes to find tiny little bugs that might be making our lettuce unkosher, what does that mean for our kosher certification? Mm -hmm. And at least one of the responses to that is like, if you use those microscopes, you sort of have to go back in time and say Moses was eating unkosher lettuce because he didn't have this microscope. And so even though we know those bugs are there, we're going to sort of like put them in a legal gray area and not think about them. So we sort of have a longstanding and widespread tradition of putting things into the we're not going to think about them box. Which is, you know, a healthy thing to do. Repression is healthy. (laughs) I think repression and ambivalence, uh, there's a few more like gradations of difference between those two things. Yeah, now that I'm in my 30s, you know, ambivalence is just growing just (laughs) exponentially. Sometimes ambivalence is is the appropriate response. So this is, you know, it's been a journey. Obviously, there's lots of weird heteronormative ideas about marriage and sexist stuff woven throughout this text. So forgive us for not making the episode twice as long to deal with all of those things, but I trust you all, dear listeners, to know what's up. Yeah. Wow. Thank you, Hava. You... Are welcome. Thank you for coming along with us on this journey. Patrons, go check out your new patron perks and take advantage of them. Send us your listener questions so we can answer them. And we'll see you in the funny paper, Shavua Tov. Shavua Tov.